Hi, welcome to PTSD 911 Presents. My name is Conrad Weaver. I'm so glad you decided to join us today for this program. If you're new to the channel or to the podcast, I am the host of this, this show, and I'm also the director of PTSD 911 Documentary. And just a little bit about that, the film is currently in production. We're probably two thirds of the way through production. We hope to have it completed by this fall. We are planning to have some release dates around uh, the National First Responder Day, October 28th. So we're excited to be moving forward with the documentary film. And if you would like to keep updated as to what we're doing with the project and how it's coming along, please subscribe to our email channel. Go to our website, ptsd911movie.com and subscribe. And you will have be the first to know about anything that we're doing and about the premier events that we are planning around the country. And you can also be the first to know about how you can bring the film to your community once it's ready to go. So we have some really exciting things happening behind the scenes as far as getting this into the hands of first responders. And so I can't wait to share those things with you. And so if you sign up for our emails, you'll be the first to know on those things and you'll keep uh, informed about what we're doing. Also, if you are on our website, please consider making a contribution toward our film. Many of you have already done that and we really greatly appreciate it. However, we need to have more of you jump in, even if it's just five bucks or 10 bucks or a hundred bucks, whatever you can give, we ask you to make a donation toward our film. Uh, right now, we uh, are needing funds to be able to to move forward and to, to get to where we wanna go. We're also, also really excited about our sponsors that have come on board. We just recently announced that the National Fraternal Order of Police has come on as a sponsor and they join the National Alliance on Mental Illness and the International Critical Incident Stress Foundation as our primary sponsors for the, for the film project. And we're also looking for that presenting sponsor. So a company organization who would like to join with us to be the presenting sponsor for this movie. We're looking for uh, to offer that opportunity to an organization who would like to join with us to get this film produced and out there to the world. So if you'd like to do that, please go to our website. There's a form on there to fill out and we'll get connected with you for that information. So that's the story of the project. Today, we have an amazing program to bring to you. We have an amazing individual. His name is Keith Hanks. Keith is a former firefighter and EMT. He retired in 2017 after 21 years on the job. Thanks, Keith, for your work. He's an advocate for PTSD and mental illness awareness, for suicide prevention and breaking the stigma. And he's been an advocate since 2015. He's an author currently working on his very first book about his own life and experience with PTSD. He is a first responder peer support group member, a public speaker on the subject of PTSD, mental illness, substance abuse, alcohol abuse, and suicide awareness. And he's currently working towards being certified as a life coach specifically aimed at the first responder world. And it's my privilege to bring Keith Hanks to the PTSD 911 Presents stage tonight. And so I, without any further ado, here's my conversation I had a few weeks ago with Keith Hanks. Well, Keith Hanks, welcome to PTSD 911 Presents. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, Conrad. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah. So uh, for our audience, tell us a little bit about who you are and what do you do? So I was a 
uh, firefighter and EMT in Massachusetts for 21 years from 1996 till 2017 when I retired due to uh, severe complex PTSD symptoms. Uh, during that time, I was a training officer for both the fire service and the EMS world. I started uh, at age 18 as an on-call member in the fire service. Um, I ended up going full-time in private EMS in 2001 maintaining uh, shift work at the firehouse throughout the entire time. And um, when I went out in 2017 due to PTSD, one of the main reasons I went out was due to lack of support and uh, I guess you would say education on the part of my uh, coworkers and whatnot when it came to PTSD. Uh, so I felt very abandoned and uh, it finally gets to the breaking point where I, I retired and, and at I say only, but only 21 years. You know, I was 39 years old. I was pretty young. So since then, it's been my my mission, uh, life calling, if you will, uh, new adventure, to continue to advocate PTSD, to tell my story, to do what I can, whether it be social media, uh, now podcasts. I do public speaking. I've had a few venues with that. So it's sort of my new direction in life, a uh, new part of the job, so to speak, that has given me a lot of fulfillment and uh, hope for the future with uh, other first responders who may be going through what I did. Let's go back to where in early in your career, when you first had a, maybe one of your first traumatic experiences, you don't have to describe what it was, but what did, what happened to you out of that, out of that one of that, one of those first traumas that you experienced? So like I said, I, I started when I was 18 years old. I was a kid. I was a senior in high school. And uh, we we had a lot of bad calls pretty much right away. It was the 90s. Things were a little bit different you know, whatever. And we had a, a fatal fire three months into me being on the job. And I immediately noticed, now looking back on it, maybe not as much at the time, but I immediately noticed that I felt a little detached from my emotions. Hmm. And I think looking back on it now, maybe not at the time because I was so young, so impressionable, cocky, that it was because it just wasn't spoken of. We didn't really deal with what the situation was that, you know, not only me, but another few younger members just went to a, a very bad fatal incident. And we didn't speak about it. We didn't ask if we were okay. And I, I found myself kind of removing myself from certain emotions so I wouldn't feel them. So I would say right from the beginning, right from almost, the, you know, first time on the job, uh, I can remember things changing. And that's so young. I mean, 18, 19 years old. I mean, you, yeah. you know, scientists have said you know, your brain's not finished developing yet. It is. And you're and you're facing these horrific scenes and carrying that weight. It was a lot. And I always tell people when, when we talk about that incident, it's one of the incidents I actually speak of in the beginning of my presentations. Um, I always I always revert back to 24 hours after that call. I was sitting in a high school classroom taking a math test, hmm. you know, and, and I always I always remember that. That's it has such a, a powerful meaning to me that after dealing with what most adults don't, I went back to being hmm. a kid again, mm -hmm. you know. 
I mean, did, is that something that you, did you go back to school and did you talk to your buddies about it or is that about what you've seen and heard or what, you know, how did that, how'd you handle that? So when I got on, I actually got on with a uh, friend, a school friend of mine. Mm-hmm. He was the only other person who was on the fire department with me in that high school. Um, so we, we did discuss the call, but for him, it was different because of when he got there and what he saw versus what I saw. Cause I was on the first truck that saw, you know, everything unfold and we discussed it, but still because the environment we were immersed in with the senior guys and for me, my relatives, uh, cause my entire family has been in the fire service forever. We weren't being encouraged to talk about it. It was a very unspoken of thing even the critical incident stress meetings were you guys want to talk about it most said no and they were like okay donuts and coffee in the back (laughs) and that was it you know and that's how it used to be Hmm. so i don't think we really about it after and so as we know you know you know post-traumatic stress is you know tends to be cumulative it just you know you have one incident then you have another one you have another one so even after those those traumatic things and i'm assuming you were a volunteer at that point on call volunteer yeah on call volunteer yeah at what point did you decide you know what i i I, you know i can put up with these things to go full-time into this i mean what made you make that decision it was pretty much right away i knew because of my family my family background that i was going to pursue it as a career not necessarily because i 100 percent only wanted to be a fireman but more of it was so impressed on me to do it so i knew before my even my first fire even before that call that i was going to want to pursue it as a career which i did and um because it wasn't how it affects you wasn't spoken of i just thought that the way it was affecting me was the way it was going to be so just push on go through it it's going to be like this is not going to get any better just do the job and it doesn't matter where you work you're going to see stuff and it's going to affect you and it is what it is Mm-hmm. And so you, you went into it at, at how old were you when you went full time? I started doing full time private EMS after my 22nd birthday. And at the same time, so I started doing more full time shifts at the firehouse. Mm-hmm. At all and, assume, and those full time shifts, I'm assuming they were probably shift work as far as like 24 on, 48 off, that kind of a scenario. Uh, they were they were different ones uh, because of the combination level department uh, that mine was. We had eight hour regular shifts, and then they had the actual uh, ambulance coverage shifts, which were like tens and fourteens. Mm-hmm. So oftentimes, I would do either a day shift or a night shift, or I would do a twenty four. It just depended. Mm-hmm. So um, back in your academy days, what kind of training and teaching did they provide as far as mental health? in the 90s nothing it wasn't it wasn't there was no it was sort of assumed that everybody knew they were going to see bad things and we all did but they didn't actually train you to be aware of of what you may need to do once you see bad things that wasn't really taught back in the mid 90s mid to late 90s and um since then when you once you get on you you get involved with like i said the critical critical incident stress meetings so then you learn that there are resources, but even back then it wasn't really pushed on you to go or, or to get involved. Did you see others who were in, in your career time? Did you see others who were suffering and they went off and 
you know, maybe they ended their life or they got them you know, or became alcoholics. Did you see that that happen? Uh, a lot, unfortunately. Um, not only does alcoholism run in my family, and I've been personally witness to it. The job itself, the departments I've been members of, uh, there have been several that have self-medicated. And, you, and in these days, further into the job, where I've been at the last, say, eight years or so, I know why they're doing it. No one's come out and been like, hey, I'm having a tough time because of the job or because of what's happened to me or what I've seen. But you know it's that. And then there's there's everything else. There's the divorces. There's the strained relationship with their kids, with their family, not doing well at the job. You know, the things that would happen with, like, promotions, getting turned over for promotions, getting removed from positions, people who are struggling to hold it together, not only in their personal life, but when it started affecting the job. And then, of course, there have been several people that I've worked with over the years that have ended their own life. And I've had mm. I've had six attempts myself. And mm. it's, it's a nasty – PTSD is very nasty and mm. ugly. So describe a little bit for those who don't really haven't been there, describe how that, how your life kind of goes into this dark hole where you feel that, you know, ending your life is less painful than going through it. You know, Conrad, I always tell everyone that anyone who is suicidal doesn't actually want to end their own life. You just want the pain to go away. And for me, that couldn't have been more truer. I didn't really want to die. I didn't want to exist. I didn't want to be around because of how much pain I was in. And like you said earlier, it's cumulative. You know, I had I had childhood trauma before I even got to the job, mm -hmm. which is very common we're finding. And once the job started, you know, hitting me, you know, taking punches at me, it just started building up and you know, bad moods become bad habits, become bad behaviors, which eventually becomes the personality you portray and you live it and you believe it. And so when you get so down a dark tunnel that you feel that there is no hope, there is no coming out as, oh, this is just horrible. This is the way it's going to be forever. I can't be fixed. I've gone to a psychiatrist. They can't help me. You become so convinced that not existing is the way that it needs to be in order for this to get better that it just becomes a mindset. You live it, you breathe it, you become suicidal, becomes your personality. So it's not just when you have a plan, you become suicidal 24 seven, you live it, you breathe it. And it's, it's comfortable for you because it's almost being safe to be in that mindset. Mm -hmm. So how do you yeah. dig yourself out of that? <laughs> uh, lots and lots of ladders and lots of attempts and failures. You know, it's, um, Excuse me. You, ha you, have to, you have to try different things. And a lot of people are looking for that magic pill. A lot of people are like, just, just fix me. I want to snap your fingers, rub that lamp, whatever it is. And it doesn't work that way. You forget and, how long it took to get you there, right? Right. right. <laughs> it's going to take some time to get out of that. It, it takes a lot of work. It is... My struggle, we'll call it a struggle at first, but my fight to get out of what I was in was harder work than any any call I've ever done, than any fire I've ever been in, than any training I've had to do. It was it was a full commitment of everything wrapped right to my soul. And it's it's a matter of these days where we're starting to educate people is a matter of making sure the resources are known, making sure that people are supported. 
and hey, there are these for options for for healing. And I went through everything from your regular, you know, psychiatry appointments, counseling. Uh, when I was 24, my first wife was killed in a car accident, so I went to um, specialized like uh, widows counseling, widowers counseling. Mm-hmm. Um, and the whole time, I I was keeping things in. I wasn't I wasn't being honest with anyone. I wasn't being honest with myself. I wasn't being honest with therapists. So we were sort of skimming the top of of what was, you know, Keith Hanks's traumas, mm. uh, which I wasn't alluding to all. I, I told no one about my childhood stuff until I was almost 38 years old. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I went through all the different modalities. I tried different things with inpatient therapy, uh, being hospitalized. Uh, you know, I had electroconvulsive shock therapy done, which broke one of my depressive cycles, but caused other issues. Mm. And in the end, after all the trauma work I did, five years of trauma, one-on-one trauma therapy, in the end, and this is in the last 18 months, I had to really sit down with my emotions, sit down with my feelings and be honest with myself and be honest with what happened to me, what, how that felt, what happened to me, the calls, the personal stuff, the loss, the deaths, the, the job loss, the financial, everything that ever happened, I had to get really honest with myself. And that's when I really started making leaps and bounds with with getting better and having a more positive personality and not being necessarily PTSD Keith, but being post-traumatic growth Keith. Mm-hmm. And that's when it really all came together was when I practiced mindfulness, I started meditating, I started living in the moment instead of looking back at the past or fearing the future. And for me, that's what really got me going and, and what has continued to keep me going. Do you think that, think that- fear pl- plays a big role in being willing to tell your story to someone or to reveal some dark thing that's from the past. I get asked all the time <clears throat> how I'm able to stand up in front of people and talk about everything from my childhood to losing my first wife, to losing my kids, to everything. I get asked how I do it. And it all comes down to just owning what happened to me. And for a long time, I didn't admit a lot of what happened to me or what I went through because of fear. Because I was afraid of what could happen next. What's the next change? What's the next thing that's going to happen to me? How am I going to feel if I talk about this? Is it going to ruin my life more? So there is a fear, I think. But I think there's also, and I think that's really what the stigma is, hmm. is that it's it's a fear of the unknown. And it's unknown because a lot of us and a lot of people who still don't aren't educating ourselves on it. And so there's this fear of what's going to happen if I don't have this comfortable state of mind where I put myself in this depressive PTSD mindset, this trauma brain. I'm living in that. What's life like not living like that? I don't know what life's like not living like that. That's scary. So there's mm-hmm. definitely fear. Mm-hmm. So how do you push how through, that, push fear? through that fear? You have to find you have to find your inner strength and your reason. And for me, I thought I had, I thought I'd gotten to a really good spot come 2019. Me and my uh, current wife finally decided that we were going to have another child after years of being told we couldn't because of my wife's medical conditions, and we were given the go ahead to do so, and we had a child in August or July rather of um, 2019, and it was a really bad pregnancy. My wife almost died. We almost didn't have mm-hmm. my daughter now, Riley. And it caused 
and I wasn't aware of it because I was so confident in myself at this point. I wasn't aware of what was happening. I downward spiraled and I hit what became my ultimate rock bottom. And in December 2019, I had my last suicide attempt. Mm-hmm. You know, and it wasn't until then, and this is why I'm convinced, and I never say everything happens for a reason. I'm not a big fan of that saying, but we are all at where we need to be because that's where we need to be. And I'm 100% convinced that that, that night had to happen for me to find my strength. I hit rock bottom. There was no more further down I could go. The only way I could go was up. And I did. It was very slow. I wasn't happy with the progress for a very long time, but I found my strength. I found my reason. You know, and it was to live. It was that, okay, at this point, I've tried everything to not be here. Let's try being here. Let's try living. Let's try finding that reason. And I have, and I continue to do that. What are some of the things you do or some of the resources that you use to keep yourself on that path? So I, one of the biggest things I have found in the last, uh, I would say year is getting, getting out. And I know that sounds very kind of corny, very simple, but a lot of living mentally healthy is, is simple. It's very simple. It's not easy. It is very simple. And so my big thing is getting out in nature. I do a lot of uh, rail. We have rail trails up here in New England, old uh, railroad paths that are now maintained for walking or hiking. So I do a lot of that. I go out with my, I have a dog. I walk them all the time. When the weather is nice, I take my daughter out. Being out in nature and getting, sort of having nothing big going on is, is, is key. You got to slow everything down. So that's one of my biggest things. And like I mentioned, I, I practice mindfulness and, and meditation all day, every day. I'm to the point now where I'm I'm grounding and meditating as I'm walking. You know, it, it's just how I keep myself at peace. And the biggest thing for me is it is hard as a first responder. As first responders, we're fixers, we're helpers. We take care of others. We ignore our needs. Even as a family man, you 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 tend to forget that you also have needs. You have to take care of yourself. And so for me. It has been a learning curve to sit back and be like, okay, Keith needs to do this. Keith needs two hours to go in and just sit and, and read a book. Or, you know, daddy can't be daddy right now. He just needs to, he needs a minute. And even just as a, as a man, as a human, we are, most people are pretty selfless. And they always think of others before they think of themselves. And we have to think of ourselves sometimes if we're going to live a mentally healthy life. And so that's what I really try to focus on is being there for my family, but also being there for me. I have to be there for me or I'm not going to be there for my family. Mm-hmm. You know, it's so important for anyone to you, you take care of yourself. But I think especially for first responders, for those who are the helpers, right? You can't help. Well, it's just like when you get on an airplane, they say, you know, when the oxygen mask fall, you first put the thing on your own face you know, and then you put it on your significant other's fate, you know, your child or whoever, because you have to first be healthy yourself. And yep. I, I think that goes to anyone who's a helper. You have to first focus, but there has been in the past so little focus on that, you know, on healthy people that can help. And um, how can you change that mindset? in an agency, in a department, how can you change that 
yeah, uh, you know, even globally to to that, hey, first responders need to first focus on themselves first. I think the biggest part is is getting people to talk about it, which is why in the last you know, eight months, I have focused on trying to become more of a, a speaker. I've networked with with other speakers who are on a more national platform at this point to try to get to that point myself, because I really, truly feel, especially in the first responder world, that if more and more of us are telling our story and getting out there, the real nitty gritty, ugly stuff that no one wants to really hear, but it's helpful, more people are going to be apt to want to talk about it, not necessarily out in public, but they're going to want to talk about it with their family. They're going to want to talk about it maybe with a therapist, you know, maybe with a counselor, you know, maybe they'll, they'll look and see that, hey, you know, I do have some stuff. I, I, I am not a superhuman. I, I am a human being just like everyone I try to fix. And that that's one of the tough pills is that we get, call it egotistical, but we get this mindset that we, you know, we're invincible. Hmm. You know, we, we see guys die, men and women die in the line of duty, and it's like that's part of the job. But we don't think about the other part. We don't think about what we're seeing and, and subjecting ourselves to on a daily basis. And I think if more people, and it's starting to happen, if more people can talk about this in a public way, it's going to encourage others to be like, okay, it's okay for me to go and, and go to my, my chief and be like, hey, listen, I've been having some issues. I'm drinking every night, whatever it is. And that person is going to be able to get help. And maybe one out of a hundred people, maybe one person on an entire department, but it may encourage that one person to get help. And I really, truly think that's what we need to do is just keep talking about this as much as we can. Mm -hmm. So how do you keep from going back to some of those dark places in your, in your life? So PTSD is a, is a repetition thing, I guess, like a routine. It becomes a routine. It's, like I mentioned earlier, it becomes a personality. It's what you portray. And it's because of unchecked trauma and unchecked uh, mental illness or whatever it is. And so because you keep practicing that way, it becomes what you do. And so the same thing is in reverse when you start to heal. So for me, one of the things I had to change was a lot of the negative people I was around. Hmm. The people that were of the suck it up, buttercup mentality, people who were uh, you know, negative or, you know, maybe, maybe even a little hostile, whatever it is. There was a lot of people I saw that had to remove that just weren't helping my mental well-being, who weren't either accepting of it, who weren't encouraging of me to be more positive. And so you have to break out of your comfort zone. And for me, that's what I had to do in every day, whether it's when I first wake up and my feet are hanging off my bed and I'm like, all right, today's going to be a good day. I literally have to tell myself that. You can't sit there and be like, oh, well, I got a headache when I woke up today. Today's gone to hell. You have to you have to really get in that mindset. You have to has to become a behavior. It has to become a routine. And you truly got to live by it like you did with everything else so far in your life. You know, we're creatures of habit. And, you know, first responders are they live a very uh, disciplined and regimented lifestyle when they're on the job. And it carries into their personal life. You know, we eat when we're told to eat when we can eat. Uh, we work certain hours, we do certain things the way we're told to do them. We live a certain way when we're at the firehouse, you know, whether it be the way you make your bed, the way you, you sit in a room, whatever it is. And we can, that can all be transferred 
to bettering our life in a more healthy way mentally is all about better, healthier routines. And it's not easy. It is very simple, but it is not easy. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned about getting away from people that are kind of that negative influence on you. How important is it to build relationships with people outside of the first responder community? It is very, is very important. I am finding these days that it is very important. It's very difficult and I struggle with it. Again, I grew up in the fire service, my family. So growing up, my, my, as a little kid, my babysitters were all fit, you know, firefighters, wives or daughters or sisters. So all I knew was a firehouse. I knew that mentality. I knew, you know, that the tough as nails, nothing bothers me sort of way. And for me, I always struggled up until recently of establishing any relationship that was outside of the first responder world. And that's not very uncommon. Mm-hmm. And so in recent times when I've, when I've been given the opportunity to explore those relationships that aren't based solely on what we do for work, that are more based on who we are as a person, that was very unfamiliar territory for me. And I did struggle with it. And some of the relationships didn't work out, you know, and, it's, I am finding that it is very important because it gives you, it gives you more perspective. You know, you get to see how other people live their lives. That's not dictated by the job and the job does dictate your personal life. I still mm-hmm. am trying to slow down the way I eat food. <laughs> you know, I still, I still finish before everyone in my family. I, you know, me and my wife and my daughter will sit down for dinner and before anyone takes a bite, I'm halfway down my plate, you know, and it's, it's that repetition of behavior from the first responder world that becomes kind of what all all we know and when you get the relationship with someone who doesn't necessarily live that uh it can be really refreshing and it has been for me it's been a different perspective oh what do you mean you don't you don't sit on the edge of the couch the whole time waiting to have to run out the door for no reason apparently you actually relax when you watch tv you actually sit back and get comfortable when you read a book you don't you know, keep your boots on the middle of the night, you know, it's, that's weird. So it's getting those relationships that are based in other parts of life is very important. Mm -hmm. So um, it's just interesting hearing some of these things that, you know, I didn't even, even think about, you know, eating food fast and all that stuff. And I've I've seen that because I've spent time in firehouses, you know, I've seen that, but uh that's a, that's a kind of a, a, a different perspective just as a civilian and in, in hearing that, you know, what do you do in, in your daily routine that you wish you would have known prior? Honestly, it's, it's, it's the honesty hmm. and not to say that I was dishonest, mm-hmm. you know, I don't consider myself a liar, but I did lie to myself for a very long time over what was happening to me. And if I could go back and change, change one thing, that would be it. Hey, just, you know, go back to my 18 year old self and be like, be honest with yourself. Like if, if this isn't sitting right, let's deal with it. And that was a lot of, and it is a, a huge downfall for a lot of people who end up going down the PTSD uh, wormhole is that you're not honest. And I said it before and 
I really wish I had been because maybe I'd still be on the job. I don't would I don't woulda coulda shoulda anything. Mm-hmm. I know where I'm at in life for the reasons I have to be. However, I am also of the mindset that careers that are definitely cut short because of what PTSD can do. And mine is an example of that. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a great question that just floated through my brain. <laughs> Let me see if I can reel it back in. Um, that happens. I'm getting older. I'm so that happens. Way. <laughs> one ear up the other. It's like a, it's like a soup strainer. Yeah, it is. I was like, yeah, I should have, should have, uh, kind of made a note for myself. Um, it was really good. Let me just think here. I can edit all this out. Um, I know it had to do with, man. That's when I do that. I know me too. It's crazy. It's crazy. Um, So in, in your world now, so what's your focus and what do you really want to accomplish, you know, in, in your speaking, in your, uh, you know, advocating for, for mental health and wellness, what, what do you want to accomplish and what do you see needs to be done? So like I've kind of alluded to, uh, you know, talking about it's the big thing, honestly, and that's sort of what I've begun doing. I've become very, very transparent on uh, social media. And obviously when I, when I do speak, and I belong, we, I met a gentleman years ago who started a peer support Zoom group meeting through Facebook, and we all meet twice a week, and we kind of support each other, talk about PTSD, get it out there, and um, so that's become very, you know, very important for me, where we've got people who are sort of of the older school mentality that have joined this group who are now talking about it, uh, who have come out about their stuff, and, um, you know, one of the other things that's this for me is very important is that in 2015, when I first got diagnosed officially with PTSD, I was still on the job and, um, I began journaling sort of, um, Mm. my memoirs, if you will. And, uh, it quickly became what is now my life story is it's a book. It is not published yet. Um, sort of, it's, it's a lot, it's 600 pages. So I don't know where to go with it. There's a lot of stuff that doesn't need to be in there. It could be in there. I, you know, so I'm sort of in the um, pre-editing phases of it, but I honestly feel that the more stories that are out there, the more we talk about this, um, the more it's going to break down. And that's sort of my focus with my own goals with my life is that I want to get my book published. Um, I'm working on, some other avenues, which are in the very beginning stages when it comes to getting my story told in other ways um, that I'm, I'm putting a lot of energy into. And I really, I didn't think I would. I was a training officer for so long, but smaller groups doing things like education is one thing. But telling my life story in front of people, I wasn't 100% sure I was going to be able to do. But I love doing it. And doing it and this is going to sound weird, but it's very empowering. When you stand in front of a room with the last one I did was 150 people or so in a room from everything from frontline fire and EMS and police and dispatchers to administrators, chiefs, commissioners, whatever it is. And they're all sitting there listening to you. And then after they come up to you and they, and they, and they give you a handshake, they pat you on the back, they tell you, Oh my God, that was amazing. It's very empowering. And so there's almost, I dare call it a selfish aspect to it where 
it makes me feel very good. It gives me another, now that my time as a frontline firefighter and EMT is over, it gives me another purpose to help the first responders, to be able to still help my brothers and sisters. And so that's kind of what I'm trying to focus my energy towards this day is to grow that in whatever capacity I can. Mm -hmm. You mentioned purpose. How important is that in, if, if you are a frontline firefighter, EMT, a paramedic, a police officer, a dispatcher, how important is it to really distinguish what your purpose is? Maybe it includes, but even outside your, your occupation. I think with the first responder world, it's, we're very identity based, mm. you know, for a very long time. I was, you know, firefighter Hanks, I was EMT Hanks. And because of what I did for work, it just carried over even off the job. And so we become what we do for work. And that's fine because it does take a very special person to be able to do this work. Sure. I don't disagree with that, but it's the reason why there's only about 1% of the population that can do it or that does do it. However, at some point, and some people can do this, but a lot of us cannot on the job. You have to find out really who you are. Hmm. Who are you? Okay, you're a firefighter, you're an EMT, that's your that's your job. And it does kind of become who you are because of what you're able to do. You're able to put your life um, behind someone else's. Someone else's life is more important than your own when you're doing your job. And that's mm -hmm. that's fine. But who are you? What makes you able to do that? What makes you able to do that and be a father or a mother, a brother, a sister, a son, a friend? whatever it is, you, you need to find out who that is. And, and for me, I didn't find that out till I was like 40 years old, hmm. you know, and I already had this baggage that I was dealing with, but it wasn't dealt with. And so here I am dealing with all my traumas, headlong with them, you know, hashing them out and dealing with them. And I'm trying to figure out who I am because I'm no longer on the job now. So who am I? So it's a lot. And, you know, the best advice I can give someone is you have to really start thinking about who you are. Why are you able to be a firefighter? Why are you able to be a cop? Why are you able to do this job? You know, and it comes back to being honest. And when you have that honesty, you're also going to realize that you need to carry yourself. Mm -hmm. You know, it's been I've been doing a lot of study on the whole thing of purpose. And, and when you when one lives a life with purpose and you discover that purpose and you begin living that the scientific evidence says you have a, a you, I mean, you lower your risk of Alzheimer's disease. Mm -hmm. You lower all these other things. You, you, you lengthen your life expectancy. You know, you, you're happier. You're well, you're more well adjusted. Perhaps this whole thing is a problem of purpose and identity. Mm -hmm. You know, if we can help, first responders discover that early on that they have a greater purpose than just their job, you know, responding to squirting water on fires or cutting people out of cars or whatever mm -hmm. it is they do, you know, that's the job, but that is part of their overall purpose. Perhaps not saying it's definite, but perhaps we'll see less incidents of people, you know, suffering from PTSD. I don't know. Just an idea. I think it spills over, you know, I think it's a lot of, I think what happens with a lot of these men and women who end up with significant PTSD that's unchecked and you start seeing things like domestic 
violence issues. You start seeing alcoholism and drug use. You start seeing suicide attempts or su successful suicides. You know, part of it is that identity that sort of you struggle with uh, in your personal life. When you when you have like for me, in my personal life, it was who am I to my wife? She doesn't see me as just a firefighter. Yeah, that mm -hmm. was sort of a turn on when we first met, but that's not who I am to her. Mm -hmm. She loves me for the man I am. So who who's the man that I am? And mm -hmm. you have to find that purpose, that identity that goes beyond what your nine to five is, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And when you're in it, you sometimes can't. And like I said, I've met, I've met men and women who can balance the job and purpose and the personal life and maybe you know, they're not necessarily having PTSD. The job has affected them somehow, but it's not necessarily to a point of trauma. But when you get to the point of trauma and you've gone down that trauma brain, you have that trauma personality, you lose focus on what your purpose and what your identity really is. The only thing you can focus on is what you do on the job because that's, you know, so it's, it's causing the pain. Yeah. And it's instant gratification too. When you go to work, mm -hmm. you know, I'm going to go to a fire. I'm going to put that fire. I'm going to feel great. I'm going to save that baby. I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, do CPR on the ground, whatever it is, I'm going to, you know, help someone out of a car, whatever it is, you get that instant gratification, which enforces that identity. Mm -hmm. But what about when the job's not there? Like in my case, when I had to leave because, you know, the trauma was, was literally killing me. What was my purpose? I didn't have one. So I spiraled. Mm -hmm. And it's inevitable. If you don't have that purpose of who you really are, you're going to spiral. Yeah. You know, the other week I have another podcast that I that I launched here recently called Explore Purpose. And it's all about I interview interesting people that I've met and talk about purpose and meaning in life. And so one of the first people I interviewed, I asked her that question, who are you and what do you do? Well, I ask her, who are you? And she starts with, well, I'm a Capricorn. I'm a Pittsburgh Steelers <laughs> fan. And then we laughed. Right. And we had this chuckle because What's the typical response when I ask, who are you? Your job. Your job, right? And I guarantee it, you can walk into any firehouse or any police precinct or any dispatch call center, and you ask those individuals, who are you? What are they going to say? The job. They're going to say they're a captain. They're going to say they're a firefighter. They've done the job this long, yada, yada, yada. Yep. Yep. And so there is there is part of the issue when, and I've talked to people who have retired like yourself and others who are lost and, and it's beyond even first responders. It's other people too. I have a friend who retired recently from, uh, you know, from a government job, one of those three letter agencies that he worked for, for many, mm -hmm. many years. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was like, now who am I now? What do I do? You know, I did this for so long. And I think, I go back to saying, if we can discover what that purpose is, who we really are, you know, what we're created for, then I think we can better get through life and, and we're not just focused on, I am a firefighter, I am a filmmaker, you know, I am a, whatever it is that you do. Uh, it, it, it's a bigger story because we're all, everyone wants to be a part of something bigger than themselves, right? Yep. Yep. Yeah. That's what, that's what we're made for. And if we can discover that and what that thing is, then it gives us more satisfaction and gratitude and perhaps can help us through some of those darker times that uh, may come up. I think it's important to be able to, 
uh, truly face, you know, who you are to be able to look at why am I, why am I a firefighter? You know, mm-hmm. look at the job. You know, why, why do I do this? You know, and you know. So why me, why did you? you, you I mean, we we, t- we talked about this earlier, but 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 why were you a firefighter? Honestly, because I, you know, we have the whole family thing, but then. By the time I went to become a firefighter when I was 18, I had already, like I said, had the childhood stuff. So at that point in my life, I looked at the job and what it could do to me, including ending my life, you know, whether it was, you know, line of duty, whatnot. And it wasn't as scary what I had already been through. And it's not to necessarily be like, oh, you know, I got this. But with what I had gone through as a child and the way my life had been up to that point, I looked at the firefighting field. And what I was going to do in the ambulance eventually um, is it had nothing on what I had already been through. And that's really why I felt I could do it because it was like, what could it do to me? And then I got on and I realized, wow, there's some really bad things that happen in the world. (laughs) And, uh, you know, it really kind of added to it. Um, So, you know, it's Mm. being able to talk about it is key. And and I'm a a big guy. I'm six foot five. I'm about 270 pounds. And so when I get on stage and I start talking like real – emotional stuff and i start coming out about the skeletons in my closet people are like whoa mm. like they don't expect it you know and mm-hmm. and that's kind of why i do it because we are a society where image counts mm-hmm. and when you can take someone and i and i i'll put myself up there on a pedestal for a minute when you can take someone my size and put them on stage and have them come out with what i do it packs a lot more power than your quote-unquote average size human being mm-hmm. and I have found that it has made an impression on a lot of people and that gives me more and more purpose. It gives mm-hmm. me more and more encouragement to keep doing it. And I'll use my size. I've used my size my whole career. You know, I was always, as a bigger guy, you always get tasked with a harder job. So, Hey, I'll, sure. use, I'll use my, my persona and, and the image that I look like from the outside mm-hmm. as a way to portray my story and get it out there and help more people. Mm-hmm. I'm okay with that. Mm-hmm. So for the individual who's watching this or listening to this and they're in that dark hole, they're in that place where they don't know where to go, what's something practical? What's the first step that they should do to start crawling out of that? The biggest thing I can tell people is you gotta you gotta come back to the now, what's happening right now. And one of the biggest slippery slopes that I always got into is I was always comparing. Uh, and not necessarily like what with other people, I was comparing the current situation with ones I had been through in the past. And that's part of trauma brain. That's, that's, that's a textbook PTSD response is that whatever's going on in your life right now is eventually going to be as bad as the bad things that happened before. And the biggest advice I can give someone is you have to slow everything down. You got to try as hard as you can to just, you don't need to kumbaya, get into a yoga position or, or meditation or anything. You just need to ground yourself. You have to take two seconds to be in the moment you're in. For me, when I get to it, because I still do, I still, I have to self-check all the time. I'm going to have PTSD the rest of my life, so I'm going to have to keep the balance the rest of my life. When I get to that point, I literally, and I reference Die Hard. If you remember in Die Hard, he's on the plane, and he doesn't like flying, and the guy's like, hey, when I get to where I'm going, I take my shoes and my socks off and I feel the carpet. Mm-hmm. He's talking about grounding. He's grounding himself. And I ground myself probably two or three dozen times a day. And it says simple is feeling the ground below you. It is literally all it is. 
and that's all I do. And once I put myself in that moment, it gets myself out of that death trap, essentially, of trauma brain. And it's not a, it's not necessarily a fix. And when you're in the suck, as I like to call it, you know, it's it's really hard to maintain that. But it comes back to just being in the now and not thinking about the past or what could be or what's going to happen. It's what's happening right now. What smells? What do you feel? Close your eyes. What do you hear? It's literally grounding is what really kind of gets you out of that moment. Hmm. For me, what I mean. are some... Yeah, thank you for sharing that. What are some resources that you've found that are uh, organizations or resources that that people can reach out to for for help if they're if they're looking for help? So there's a lot of different avenues. Um, like I said, there's a lot of different modalities, and a lot of it depends on where you're at uh, with your PTSD. Mm -hmm. Whether you're in crisis or you're just like acknowledging that you do have some things going on. You're, you're obviously if you're if you're contemplating suicide, call the suicide hotline. 911 hotlines, get to a hospital, mm -hmm. call the cops, whatever it is. But if you're if you're acknowledging that you may have some some traumas, that you some things have happened that are affecting you long term, the biggest advice I can do is is, is start looking for trauma based therapy. Um, you can do quite a bit of work, and I always tell people that you can do all the therapy you want, all the invasive procedures you want, take all the pharmaceuticals you want, but at the end of the day, you have to make the changes. However, mm -hmm. You need to get to a point where you know you can make those changes. Mm -hmm. And a lot of those things, the treatments, the pharmaceuticals, the whatever it is, can get you to the point where you can make those changes. Mm -hmm. And so I, a, lot, a lot of times out near me, we have uh, a lot, some different programs. We have less programs now. Unfortunately, COVID has shut down some first responder-based programs around here. But we have uh, McLean's Hospital in the Boston area. Uh, it's right outside of Boston. They're a very big establishment. They do all sorts of mental illness, but they have a first responder specific program called the leader program, which mm -hmm. is everything from law enforcement, to first responders, the veterans. Um, and it's a, it's a very good program. Uh, we've sent some people there through our peer support group that have gone through it in the last year or so. Uh, then, you know, you have, you have other things too. So you have, you know, hospital, hospitalization sort of level when it comes to stuff. You have your counselors and your therapists who you can tend to connect to after you go to a hospital. But then there's places that are like retreats that are sort of like just a place to get away. And you're seeing more and more of them in this country for first responders. Veterans have had them for about a decade or decade and a half now. They've been more veteran-based ones. But there are a few. There's one out by me by the name of Onsite Academy, uh, and they take people from all over the country. Uh, I've met people there from California, Florida whatnot. And it's not, they do some therapy. They do uh, EMDR therapy, the uh, left, right brain therapy there. Mm -hmm. uh, but a lot of what they do is just very um, holistic. You know, they do yoga, they do meditation, they do massage, they have Reiki sessions, they have quiet time, they host AA meetings. And a lot of times the non-invasive sort of laid back way can help someone who's just in the beginning of acknowledging that they may have some stuff going on. Uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be sitting with a doctor in a room uh, in, in a quote-unquote psych ward, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, so there's a lot of different avenues. And, and I tell people, you got to be open-minded with it. And, you know, I've tried all of them. I've been to all these places. I've tried different modalities. And a lot of it has helped in the long run. But in the end, once I got to the point where, like, the traumas were sort of roped in and I sort of debriefed them, if you will, I made the changes in my life.
I put my foot down and was like, I'm not going to be like this anymore. I don't want to be like this anymore. I want to be a good father. I want to be a good husband. I want to be a good leader. I want to be someone that people can look at and be like, wow, that guy. And so I had to do it. And in the end, anyone who tries to get help, you have to make the changes. It's not just psychiatrists ain't going to do it for you. You know, your yoga instructor is not going to do it for you, whatever it is, you have to do it. And that's a, that's a scary thing for a lot of people is making that change. Mm -hmm. I think that's an important message to, to hear just, uh, that it, that it does take a lot of hard work and it, it's a process and, but you have to be willing to, to do the work to, to get there. It's just like, I made a film a couple of years ago about the opioid crisis and, mm. and people in recovery, you know, and one of the things that they, that I have people in recovery tell me over and over again, I have to do the work. Yep. If I don't do the work, I'm going to relapse. I'm going to go back into using dope. And so it's, it's that, and it's the same thing with this, that you have to be willing to do the work to, to get to where you want to go. And sometimes, like you said, you have to have a, a little push with some medication, some other things to clear the brain, to, to get you that place where you can say yes to doing the work. So I think you know, that's I great people, advice. I tell people all the time, you know, we, in this job, we, we, we really push training. You know, the first responder world, we're all about training, be prepared for that, that one call in a lifetime that we'll need these skills for maybe. Mm -hmm. why are we putting such a stronger emphasis on taking care of ourselves? I mean, how can we go into a job, no matter what part of the first responder world or even the veterans, what, how can you go into a job knowing you're going to deal with the absolute worst of society and not expect it to affect you? You're a human being. Mm -hmm. I'm fairly convinced that most of society aren't the spawn of Satan and that most people <laughs> are in fact good and mm -hmm. that you're, you're, you're human. You're just like the people we're trying to help. Therefore, you're going to be affected by bad things. It's not okay mm -hmm. to be okay with, you know, going to six dead baby calls in a week. You know, that's, mm -hmm. that's going to affect you. If you're a human being, you're going to be sad. You're going to, mm -hmm. you're going to cry about it or you won't. And it's going to affect you worse. Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So I know you have a couple of groups, some, some Facebook groups and some zoom groups that you do. What, uh, where can people get in touch with you? Where can people contact you or be a part of any of those groups? Uh, so I'm on most of the more major social media platforms, uh, Facebook, LinkedIn, uh, Instagram, and Twitter. And then I did start myself. I started a first responder and veteran PTSD group by the name of PTSD awareness for first responders and veterans back in 2016. Uh, we're an international group. Now we have, uh, I think we represent 12 countries, uh, all over the world. Uh, we've got about 3,500 members. Uh, it's, it's a low key group. People post, Hey, I'm having a bad day. And all of a sudden everyone comes in and is like, Hey, what can we do? What can we do people with private message. So it's like a support network. Uh, since then, I have networked with people who have started their their own groups, uh, which is how I got involved with the Zoom peer support. Uh, that group is the Sunday group on Facebook. And uh, we run through that, we run our peer support uh, Zoom meetings twice a week, Thursdays and Sundays, uh, seven to nine approximately. Sometimes we're there for two hours, some that sometimes we're there on a very low key night. And we ended at like 45. And Pretty much anyone in the first responder world is welcome. We do have some nurses and doctors now because of COVID uh, that have joined. Um, and what we always tell people who want to join the Zoom groups is as long as one of the moderators, who is me uh, or Brian, knows 
has some other way to contact you besides Facebook, you can join the group. Like, give us a phone number so in case something happens, we lose a connection with you, you start talking about something really heavy or you look like you need some more help, we have a way to get in hold of you. But basically, we open it up to anyone. And uh, we have pretty good meetings. You know, we have on the average uh, 12 to 14 people. We've had nights we've had 24, and that gets to be a little much. Um, but we do a lot of good. We try to direct people to get help, to talk about things. And, um, you know, that's sort of what we do now is um, we just kind of direct people. We help those of us who are moderators have all been through PTSD ourselves. Uh, and, uh, you know, we just want to help people. Mm-hmm. Mm. So we welcome anyone to join. Yeah. Well, I really, really appreciate what you're doing. Thank you for telling your story, for sharing uh, the struggles that you went through. And, and thank you now for reaching back and, and helping others along. I really think that's important to, and, and I'm sure it's important. You're finding it's important in your own recovery and your own journey to, to wellness, to, to help reach back and take care of others. I'm sure. Absolutely. So. It is. And we'll be sure to put all those links in the show notes that, uh, that if you want to send me those links, I can put them in there. And so people can access that directly here on YouTube and on our, our podcast page as well. So, uh, people can access those links as as they, as they need to. So, uh, well, Keith, thank you so much for your time today and thanks you for being here and appreciate uh, what you're doing for the first responder community. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Hey, thank you so much for watching and listening to the PTSD 911 Presents podcast. I really appreciate your participation. If you would subscribe to our YouTube channel and subscribe to our email list so you can keep up to date on what we're doing with the film and with this podcast show. We have some great additional interviews coming to you in the in next few weeks and months. So please stay tuned as to who we're bringing on. And if you have someone that you would like to hear and see on this show, please send me an email and make an introduction. I'd really appreciate it. Hey, thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. And I will talk to you again next time on the PTSD 911 Presents podcast.